The music teacher says it was consensual sex. His former students say it was rape. He had sex with me once in the classroom, um, in a closet. Something happened to me, too. I thought he was our little predator. Why wasn't he stopped? These women seek answers and justice. I'm Julie Ireton, host of a new podcast, The Band Teacher. It's available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Just that somebody could be this diabolical. This is a CBC Podcast. Astra Taylor sees insecurity as the common thread running through all the crises we're facing today. She wants us to recognize insecurity as a social problem and makes the case as this year's CBC Massey lecturer. Astra Taylor is a filmmaker, writer, and political organizer. And her series and book are called The Age of Insecurity, Coming Together as Things Fall Apart. You can hear the Massey Lectures on the Ideas podcast. Matt Galloway spoke with Astra Taylor in November. Here's that conversation. How do you define insecurity in the context of the time that we're living in right now? What does that word mean to you? Insecurity is a word that spans the personal and the political, and that, that's part of what drew me to it. I mean, when we say insecurity, we all know the emotion that it conjures, right? Feeling feeling vulnerable, feeling apprehensive, uh, you know, not knowing uh, what the coming months, years, decades have in store. But what I'm trying to say in this book is that insecurity is, is actually also a social and political phenomenon. It's not just an emotional state. And so I'm I'm looking at the ways that our society is structured and the way it exacerbates this feeling of, of vulnerability, of insecurity, uh, and ways that we can redefine security so that we can actually, you know, breathe a bit. <laughs> in the way that society is structured in some ways, I mean, this is part of the human condition. You say mm. in the book that, like, as long as we're alive, we're destined to exist yeah. in a condition of existential insecurity. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. What I'm trying to do is also say insecurity is not necessarily always a bad thing. In, in fact, I think it, it is inherent to the human condition. And so I, I distinguish between what I call existential insecurity on the on the one hand, and what I call manufactured insecurity on the other. And, you know, existential insecurity is, is something that is hard, but also sort of beautiful. It's the fact that we are inherently vulnerable. We all need care throughout our entire lives from cradle to grave. We can be wounded, you know, psychologically. We can have our feelings hurt. We can have low self-esteem. We can be physically wounded. That's something that unites us, actually, and it is a reminder that we need each other. But on the other hand, I look at the way that our society and our economy is structured to really produce what I see as unnecessary forms of vulnerability in order to facilitate profit and power. And that's what I call manufactured insecurity. So the fact that, you know, no advertisement will ever say, hey, you're great. You're actually okay. You know, it's the world that needs changing. Um, you know, the ways that we're encouraged to be afraid, to be afraid of other people, of, of our fellow citizens, and to think that we need to build walls and um, defend ourselves and that the only way uh, to guard against this vulnerability is through, you know, just thinking of ourselves uh, as atomized individuals. You know, I think there's a, a political problem there that we can actually work together to solve. You asked people what security mm -hmm. means to them. What did you hear back from people? I found this fascinating because the, the list uh, of, of responses that you got 
is wide and varied, as you would expect from from people who are wide and varied. Yeah, you know, some people said um, being able to pay my rent, housing, food, community. Uh, a refugee said not living in a war zone, the ability to think about the future without being stressed. You know, this idea that the security isn't just one thing. It's a multifaceted condition. And I'm making the case for a robust system of, of material security, Right. So the answer to that manufactured security is a kind of baseline of material security, the provision of things like housing, health care, you know, a stable climate. And because I actually think that's the foundation upon which we can actually start grappling with our existential insecurity in an interesting and productive way. When we talk about those things that we all need, you say that using words like food insecurity and housing mm-hmm. insecurity and economic insecurity, that those phrases are useful. Why are they useful in talking about those mm-hmm. issues? Yeah. As I was writing this, you know, it occurred to me, well, it sounds a bit euphemistic. Why do we talk about food insecurity instead of just hunger? Yeah. Like, are we beating around the bush with these terms? And what I've come to is, is no, because Insecurity always looks forward. Well, hold on, what's coming up? Because you might have enough food on the table. You might have a fridge full of food today. But a whole bunch of people don't know if that's going to be the case a week or a month or a year hence, right? You might be sheltered in the moment, but be housing insecure because maybe you're going to be evicted or maybe you're actually couch surfing. So I think these are, are actually really important categories because they remind us that as human beings, we actually, it's not enough to think about the current moment. We need to be able to look forward, to plan. And I think that the tending to that element of, of looking forward is really critical and, and just philosophically interesting. If we frame something like the housing crisis mm. um, through the lens of housing insecurity as opposed to a problem of affordability, what changes? I think for especially younger folks, but it's really widely felt, you know, one of the major sources of insecurity, not just in Canada, uh, also in the United States, but all over the world is is the rising cost of housing. This is a, a crisis level. And, you know, it's often spoken about in terms of affordability. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which puts other, it back on you, right? You, yeah, can't, which, you, you can't afford this. Yeah, you can't afford this. And maybe somehow we just need to build some more housing that maybe a certain subset of, of them are at lower uh, rates. But it still leaves housing to the marketplace. And, you know, there's a robust tradition of providing social housing, of actually saying it isn't and shouldn't be just provided as a, a commodity, that it's actually a right. And that housing is something that is so important <laughs> to our fundamental security that we can't just leave it uh, to be provided on uh, on a, a market basis alone. And, you know, this is working in, in other countries. I mean, I use the example of Finland. Mm-hmm. I look at social housing in, in Austria, where people are living in housing that is, is, uh, that's provided um, as a social and public good. And there's a robust tra- tradition of social housing in Canada. You know, some still exist. So I think we need more of it. And this is actually in accordance with human rights law, which is when you talk about housing as a human right, what you're saying is housing shouldn't just be a commodity. If we want housing security, you know, and I try to make this case in much more detail in the book, I think we are going to have to go down go down this route because uh, what we're doing right now is is absolutely failing millions of people and is you know, climbing actually higher and higher up the income ladder, right? Because more and more people who seemingly middle class are feeling squeezed for their housing. It's just, you know, unacceptable and unnecessary. You reference um, Louise Arbour, the former Supreme Court Justice, yes. and, and the way that she 
looked through the Charter of Rights and Freedoms toward issues of, of security. How does she interpret, I guess, our charter right toward security? Yes, and I think it's so important to just reiterate this basic point that we as Canadians have a charter right to security. We don't talk about that a lot. And and that means what to people? Right. What does that mean? That's exactly the question. (laughs) Because rights aren't just self-evident. We always, and this is, you know, the activist in me, the organizer in me, we always have to struggle over what those rights mean once they're on the page. So the, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms lays out clearly that all Canadians have a right to security of of the person. And this is language that echoes the Universal Declaration of of Human Rights, uh, which mentions security multiple times. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's an ongoing struggle over what that right entails. And I talk about Justice Arbor and others who have made very, very compelling uh, arguments that this right to security actually means precisely that material security I was talking about. That if we're going to be secure and free, <laughs> that we actually need to be able to survive. We need to have things like housing, welfare provision, uh, health care, and the like. And there's another school of legal thought that dominates today that says, no, you know, all the Charter of Rights and Freedoms does is actually uh, protect what are called negative rights, that it's it's about protection from from the state, from state abuse, for example. So, you know, you have the right to, to not be illegally detained, the right to a trial, you know, right to free speech, to, to peaceably assemble, freedom of religion. But no, we can't have what are called positive rights, you know, the right to things. There's a battle over whether a right to security is a security from or the security of welfare provisions. Mm. And I say in the book, you know, and, and Arbor agrees, <laughs> is that, you know, building on her case and the case made by others, that we need protection and provision, right? So, yes, we need protections. We need that those negative rights. We need security from. But we also need that more positive, robust conception of security, that web of social supports. And, you know, that was what people intuitively knew, right? When I asked people, what does security mean to you? They understood that security is kind of meaningless if you you know, if you don't have the things that you need to live a dignified life. We've been talking about that in this country for a long time. If you go back mm-hmm. to the 1970s, even then, he says, as a child of the 70s, <laughs> um, th- there was the discussion around the idea of a UBI, a universal mm. basic income. Tell me just briefly about, about that experiment in this country around the, the universal basic income and what that did for, for, for the broader community, but also for the individuals who are part of it. Yes, I, you know, I think there's a strong case to be made that a universal basic income or a guaranteed annual income, it goes by different names, yeah. is essential to creating that foundation of material security I'm, I'm discussing. You know, and I'd love to see a movement, you know, as activists, we're saying, yes, I have a right to vote. I have a right to free speech. I have a right to security. And that means I'm entitled to something like a, a UBI. So there was a, a famous experiment that I'm sure many of your listeners know, known as Mincom in Manitoba. Um, and it's, you know, the largest um, and most well-documented experiment in providing a basic income for an entire community. And what happened there, the experiment eventually was sort of called off when there was a, a change in government and, and the funding situation changed. But it, it was underway for, for enough years that there's really good uh, data there that scholars later um, analyzed and began discussing. And it's backed up by the outcomes in other guaranteed annual income experiments around the world. But essentially, you know, what this did for people was it, it gave them some breathing room. Folks had a, a floor beneath which they, they, knew, they knew they couldn't fall. So 
People did things like go to the dentist for the first time, take their kids to the dentist for the first time. Mothers, uh, you know, did some uh, additional education, <laughs> went back to school. Teenage boys uh, stayed in, in their high school classes instead of dropping out and having to work. People generally just felt better. There was a, a marked improvement in uh, health outcomes. So both physical, you know, people actually were harmed less on the job because they were less frantic and less, and thus less inclined to injure themselves. Uh, mental health rates improved and crime went down just by providing people this really modest amount amount of income as a something they could rely on, and you know we're always told, oh, if you provide people security, well then they won't work, they well, won't that, be productive. Which is why it doesn't politically it doesn't often yes. catch on because it, the the argument that you'll hear back is they're just getting something for nothing. Yes, and what these experiments show is you we actually all get something from this investment because you know what they were was actually more productive, healthier, and of course that's you know saves the state money because they're. Uh, less sick, they're reliant less on, you know, health and mental health services. Again, less need for policing and criminalization. And so it's this, you know, sense of okay, well, what what's the real calculus here? Are we what kind of accounting are we doing? Because there's just now at this point overwhelming evidence that we benefit as a society when we invest in each other and when we take security seriously. And so my point in this book is, well, let's start talking about it and let's start finding just some strategies together uh, to get out of this mess. This is a perfect storm of conspiracy theories. On December 15th, 2017, Canadian billionaires Honey and Barry Sherman were found dead in their mansion. To this day, the case remains unsolved. Counterfeit and uh, copied pharmaceuticals was much more lucrative than heroin, cocaine and the rest of it. If you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Listen to the no good, terribly kind, wonderful lives and tragic deaths of Barry and Honey Sherman, wherever you get your podcasts. Some of the most interesting stuff in, in these lectures is around education. I found... Your mother's story of, of what she did in the 1970s in Yukon, in the Carcross Community Education Center, to be super interesting. Can you tell me a little bit about that and what sort of mark her experience there in that, that experimental environment mm -hmm. made on her and on you? Yeah. You know, some people might not see the immediate connection between education and insecurity, but at a basic level, I think conventional schooling too often relies on insecurity as an instrument of motivation. And in fact, our whole society relies on the stick of insecurity to keep things going when we could actually rely on other motivations like the fact we care for each other, the fact we actually like to collaborate, and our curiosity. Uh, my mother uh, was born in 1960 in Toronto. And my grandmother was a hippie, but kind of old for a hippie. She was really on the vanguard. She ends up taking her two daughters up to Whitehorse in 1969, where my mom then, a couple years later, lies about her age, adds a year to it, and enrolls in this experimental school. It's still called the hippie school to this day. It mm -hmm. doesn't, it's not there anymore. Where the kids and the, the teachers, the, the parent members, as they were called, sort of ran the school as democratically as they could. And this was just so formative for my mother as a, a young person. And this was part of a wave of educational experiments happening around North America, you know, where people are trying to reinvent education, and make it more child-centered, to challenge things like grades, see if you could do things a different way. And 
Uh, my mom was there at, at the age of 14, pretending she was 15, uh, participating in these fascinating meetings about what is education actually for? How do you best learn? While also doing all sorts of things like farming and building cabins and, and learning these other other skills. And so that experience of being at that school in Carcross then filtered into my childhood um, because my mother then gave us, gave my siblings and I, the option to go to school or not um, and really kind of tried to imbue our our household with that democratic ethos of education that she encountered in uh, the early 70s, so far from where I grew up in Ex- Georgia. Explain what that meant. I mean, go to school or not. This isn't homeschooling. This is yeah. unschooling. <laughs> yeah, it was unschooled. Which w- is a, What does that mean? The main insight at the heart of unschooling is that we are curious creatures. That, that That's just like I'm saying insecurity is a fundamental part of the human condition. Well, so is curiosity. You talk about the radical <clears throat> openness of curiosity. A radical openness of curiosity. And in that, in that sense, you know, I think curiosity requires that we actually be a bit vulnerable because you have to be like, I don't know something and I want to. And I'm reaching out to the world. I'm I'm open to learning more. I'm open to being wrong. How, is, so that, how think, is that radical? Yeah. I mean, I think we're taught to, to revere the people who know, the authorities, right, who actually don't show any sign of, of doubt. Or I also think, again, the way our education system is structured, you know, you're graded in a test, you're great on, you know, how much you've, you've mastered the information. Do you have the facts and figures? And that's important. I love facts and figures, as you can tell from my book. Mm-hmm. But, you know, is grading really the best way to do it? And instilling a sort of fear of failure uh, in children, the best way to get them to want to learn? Or is there another approach that kind of opens them up? And the learning process necessarily requires some failure <laughs> and, and admitting uh, that you don't know everything and being comfortable with that is is really important. And so unschooling, I don't think it works for everybody. I don't think everyone should, should stay home and teach themselves like I did when I was a kid. But there's something in the at the core of it, this ethos that, yes, you know, you're you're a kid and you're a curious being and you should have some space to follow your interests, some encouragement on that front, I think has really informed my whole worldview, definitely has informed, you know, the path I've chosen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just that I, I want people to have some of that, that intellectual freedom that I got to experience, uh, I got to experience. You quote, and it's just briefly, but you quote mm-hmm. um, Alan Watts, who is mm-hmm. like Buddhist or Buddhist adjacent kind of mm. thinker and writer who who has written about the wisdom of insecurity. Is that in part what you're drawing on there? I do take some some inspiration from that, you know, and I think that's my when we see that we all are vulnerable, that we all need care throughout our lives, we when we actually attend to that instead of denying it, right? And and fleeing from that truth, then that's actually the foundation on which we should build our our society. But uh the thing I I, where I think I part ways a little bit with Watts is that I think we have to change those material structures. Like we have to we have to change our outlook, but we also have to get organized. Mm-hmm. I think that the wisdom of insecurity can also help us with that. So one thing I see in my political work, my organizing, is that the first step to social change is actually talking about your vulnerabilities with others. From those discussions, you can actually work and build solidarity. We're just about out of time. Let me talk about how you did this um, through mm. the work that you have done with uh, the Debt Collective. This is, I mean, part of this is about the insecurity of debt, this idea mm. that it hangs over us, that we're meant to feel guilty, that we're meant to feel like it's our fault because we we have debt that surrounds us. In your work as an organizer, you help relieve people of private debt. Tell me just briefly about Douglas Harper and the letter that you sent to him that began jubilant greetings. 
<laughs> yes, jubilant greetings. The debt collective a group that I helped found is the world's first union for debtors. We take inspiration from the labor movement where workers come together and say, hey, we're being mistreated on the job. What if we got together and fought for better wages or benefits? Uh, so one thing we do is we have a project called the Rolling Jubilee where we actually buy and erase people's debts because actually consumer debt is bought and sold on a shadowy secondary debt market. Um, and it's sold for pennies of, on the dollar, though collectors try to get the full amount. So we sent uh, a letter to one of 20,000 people whose uh, probation debts we had erased. And basically, uh, criminal debts in the U.S. that are incurred for minor violations, maybe a speeding ticket or leaving your trash can on the curb. Just a couple hundred when you're dollars. Not supposed to. A couple hundred dollars. But for people, many, many people, millions of people in the United States, they don't have it. Yeah. Um, people do not have the money for an emergency. And when you don't pay these debts long enough, you can go to jail. Just by wiping away this debt, we gave this guy the, the breathing room, the security, so he could actually get back on track in his life, uh, start um, getting back to work, uh, not have to make painful choices about paying his probation debt or feeding his kids. I can't say it enough, but other people's security is not a threat to us. <laughs> it's actually in our self-interest. Uh, and I've seen you know, Douglas Harper uh, and thousands of others of folks whose debts we've eliminated, just, you know, how much they personally benefit from this. And I'd like to I'd like to see it hap- happen at scale. That's what the debt collective's working towards is the abolition of these unjust debt and the provision of the things we all need to lead healthy, thriving lives. You erased $3 million of probation debt mm. because you bought it for $90,000. Yes. What, yes. Is it, what is it like to change somebody's life? I mean, it's 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 nice. We just actually did it uh, last week, or maybe it was ten days ago. I can't remember. We uh, purchased ten million dollars of of tuition debts for a few thousand folks who had attended a historically black college uh, in the U.S. in Atlanta, um, enabling folks to get their transcripts and their degrees, maybe go back to school. And those stories are amazing. But what what it again what it makes me want is to to have this happen at scale. Yeah. It shouldn't be up to activists like me and my comrades to solve uh, these big financial problems. We we have something called the government, <laughs> and and you know that's that's the true agent of change. But we're not going to win policies that are equitable uh, and just unless we as as regular folks start getting together. And I think I really do think a conversation about insecurity is essential to that. Insecurity is something that really unites a whole bunch of us, from folks like Douglas Harper to people who are seemingly middle class and upwardly mobile. Um, I think there's there's something in here that can that can uh, connect us, connect people who you know are seemingly in very different states, uh, so that we have a framework to understand how much we all have to gain by engaging in social change. The world is really hard right now, and the news is awful, and there's so many people that are hurting in so many different ways because of everything that's happening. You quote your late friend, the anthropologist David Graeber, who said, the ultimate hidden truth of the world is that it is something that we make, and we could just as easily make differently. Mm. Do you believe that? I believe that with like every cell of my body. I really do. And I There's because- a triumphant optimism. To something there, like that. Well, there is because, you know, all you have to do is look at history to know that that's the case. I mean, so many folks, you know, have engaged in conscious efforts to change things for better and for worse. Nothing human is set in stone. And, you know, and that is powerful because there's, you know, there is something really inspiring there. And that's creativity. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of injustice. There's a lot of things happening right now today that break my heart. But there's a lot of beautiful stuff happening, too, a lot of resistance, a lot of empathy, um, a lot of care. 
And, you know, I've seen it with my little group of the Debt Collective. We are tiny, and we've ch- we've changed the public discourse. We've changed public policy. So, you know, to me, the the message I take from that is, yeah, we can we can remake things, but we just we need each other to do that. And you know, there's something fun about it too. There's something fun about making trouble, trying to remake the world. Um, and so, you know, it's not all doom and gloom. Uh, and 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 I'm not just putting a positive spin on it. I really I feel it. I really do. I'm so glad to talk to you about this. The lectures are amazing, and um, people will be riveted by their radios or however they listen to them. In the meantime, I hope they read them uh, in the book as well. But in the meantime, I'm really glad to talk to you. Thank you very much. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Astra Taylor was this year's CBC Massey lecturer. That series and her book are the age of insecurity coming together as things fall apart. You can listen to her lecture series on the Ideas podcast. Matt Galloway spoke with her in November. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.